0: Hello, my name is David Junk, and you're listening to the Art During Wartime podcast. Our guest today is award-winning actor Luzer Tursky, who appears in the new Ukrainian feature film Dovbysh in theaters in Ukraine now. You are originally from Brooklyn,
1: correct? That is correct. Do I sound like I'm from Brooklyn? <laughs> you know, the old saying is, that why do Jews always a- answer a question with a question? Why not?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, can you first tell us a little bit about what the film Dovbish is about? And what did you think the first time you read the script?
1: I'm probably not the right person to ask about the the meaning of the film. And because I think it means so much uh, to Ukrainians and my lack of knowledge of Ukrainian history and culture uh, is probably going to butcher this answer. Um, but the, the film is generally about uh, regular people of Western Ukraine fighting against the, the nobility, the Polish nobility, and uh, rise up to take control of their land, take control of their lives, to, uh, to be independent, and to have their land. Uh, so that's the general gist uh, of the story in an in, in extremely abbreviated form.
0: What was your reaction when you received the script for the first time?
1: The first version of the script I received was uh, a crude translation into English. So, uh, but it was probably not the way it was intended to be read. Uh, but I, the first thought was like, I've never done a movie like this. This is different than anything I've ever done in my career. Um, this is clearly like a big uh, a big uh, spectacle of a film. Uh, and I was very excited and thrilled to play a small part in it.
0: The part you play is the part of the rabbi besht am i saying that correctly besht
1: yes yes who aids the hero dovbush how did you get the role so it came about i had a i have a friend of mine who is uh, more handsome and more famous than myself and they originally approached him for the role but he was unavailable and he recommended me and the audition process was basically i was told um, to record a Hasidic hymn, like a Hasidic song, which we call a nigun, um, a, a song that's known as the Balshemtov. So the Balshemtov is known as the Besht. Uh, in certain circles, uh, he's referred to as the Besht, uh, mm-hmm. but most people refer to him as the Balshemtov. So there's a song called the Balshemtov's nigun, the Balshemtov song. So I was asked to record myself singing that song, and that's a song that's very familiar to me. I grew up with it. Uh, it's uh, very easy for me to to sing it. I was like, well, that's the easiest edition I ever had to learn. I don't have no lines. No, I don't need, I don't need someone to read with me. So I just recorded myself uh, singing that song and I sent it in. And uh, just a short while later, I was basically told that uh, you got it. And the next step was, uh, you know, getting the script and trying to learn the lines, learning Ukrainian and uh, getting, trying to get a better understanding of my role in the film.
0: I read you are 10th generation ancestor of that character, the the rabbi. That must have been really exciting to play someone that you're related to.
1: Yeah, actually, ninth generation. I I grew up Hasidic. I grew up as a Hasidic Jew. And in our community, it's a pretty big deal to be a direct descendant of like the founder of the movement. So I, I've i known all my life that I'm a descendant. I'm actually a descendant in five different ways. I'm five times a descendant of the Baal Shem Tov. Uh uh, once the ninth generation and four times 10th generation. So I grew up all my life knowing that I'm a descendant, but I didn't tell, I didn't tell the director or the casting director that, uh, that I'm a descendant when I auditioned. I, I didn't want it to, uh, to, uh, uh, to influence the process. Uh, I wanted to get the role because I'm the best person for the role, not because of some, you know, f- uh, family ties. Um, but it's a really, it was a really big deal. It was a big responsibility because uh, you know, this person, even though I'm not religious anymore, I'm not like Hasidic uh, anymore. Uh, but still, you know, this figure occupies a great deal uh, in in my life and is very revered figure. And so it was a great responsibility for me to to portray him in a way that the old me would find acceptable, as well as the artistic me would find acceptable. So I had to balance um, not just uh, what his function in the film is, but also what he means to people in the world and what he means to, to, to people, to Ukrainians, to, to the story, what he means to Hasidic Jews and what he means to different streams of Hasidic Jews. There's many different interpretations of him. And there's very little like actual documentation. There's very little actual uh, historical evidence for what he was like and uh, what kind of person he was. So I had to uh, go on, uh, on very scant evidence To try and invent the, you know, the physical form, uh, and the personality of of this figure.
0: What is his role in the film? What all does he do?
1: Well, I think that maybe the director will have a, the writer director might have a different answer. But to me, I feel like he is sort of a moral center of the film. I describe it to an American audience as like he's that Obi Wan Kenobi um, of the film. (laughs) He doesn't do any of the any of the stealing and killing either, either, either justified or unjustified. So he's like the moral center of the film. He is the one who, who gives permission um, to Dovbush and tells him what you're, do- what you're doing is a good thing. You're not just protecting your people, you're also protecting our people. from Because the Polish nobility was not very nice to the Jews either. Um, and according to legend, you know, according to the, to the, to the mythology of both the Baal Shem Tov and of Dov Bush, the Jews of, of these small villages in the Carpathians were suffering a lot. They shared the suffering with the Oprishka and they had a lot of connection. There are stories about the Balshemtov healing not just the Hasidic Jews, but also the villagers, the, because it, it, it was very much class warfare at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and people had no rights. There wasn't like property rights or anything uh, there was no democracy. People were living under the rule of nobility. The Jewish people, they didn't own any property. Even the inns and the, and the bars that they owned, they were just managing them for the Polish nobility. And when, when they weren't getting what they wanted, the Polish nobility would be very cruel to them. So the obość and the Opryszke, they kind of banded together to protect each other.
0: I think it's interesting now that this story is being told now. Why why do you think this friendship between the hero Dovbush and your character, the wise wise rabbi, is so important to tell now in Ukraine?
1: I think there's a lot of reasons. First of all, it fits the story of Dovbush. It fits the story of the little guys fighting the big guys. And of course, especially now, uh, when Ukraine is fighting for their freedom and they're fighting for their right, Mm -hmm. for their land, and for their people so i think it's very uh prescient in the moment but i also think it's important for the historical context right yeah. right
0: and you and you mentioned this character is particularly important to
1: ukrainians yes because obviously i mean especially now can we swear on this podcast <laughs> you can, yes you can oh yes, my can. god thank you, you go right ahead okay so i don't want to get into all the bullshit of like the the russian propaganda with the nazis and the, and, and that kind of shit. um but the, they are obviously trying to spread this message uh, that you know Ukraine is an anti-Semitic uh, uh, culture, and so this is a so this is especially important to point out that uh, that U- Ukrainians have no uh, inherent anti-Semitism in Ukraine. There never was. Uh, there have been periods where obviously there was violence against Jews, but it was usually and again I'm not a historian. I'm an actor. I I don't want to speak out of line here, and I'm sure Timothy Snyder will have much more to say on this than me. Um, but in general violence against Jews that happened on Ukrainian territory were usually a result of foreign interference. Uh, it was someone coming in and creating divisions and saying like, uh, the reason Ukrainians are not free or the reason you don't have what you what you want to have is because the Jews are doing it when it really is an outside influence causing these divisions and causing this violence. So I think it's very important to to show people that actually the Jews and the Ukrainians work together against the oppressors. And it's true today as well. There's a lot of Jewish soldiers in the Azov uh battalion. Well, now it's a brig- now it's a brigade. I know way too much about the Ukrainian military than I should. Uh, but uh there are a lot of Jews who 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 are fighting uh for Ukraine. Um and you know, you know the the rabbis here, they helped a lot of people get out of uh, dangerous areas. So yeah.
0: I think it's very interesting what you're talking about, because I just don't think that's a very well-known bit of information here. And it's so important right now because of all the propaganda.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just wanted to,
0: to talk more about your coming to Ukraine. So when you came for this role, was it your
1: first time in Ukraine or had you visited the country before? No, I've been here before. So this is very interesting because I was here in 1999. Uh, and this also goes to like the power of the Russian propaganda that they've been putting out in the world over the years. Uh, I came to visit the grave sites of my family because my whole family is from here. My 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 great grandfather, who I am named after, the, the original Lusztowsky, was born in Belz, uh, which is in Lviv Oblast. Um, at the time, I think the, it was western, Poland. the western, yeah, western the western part of the country. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think at the time it was Poland, but it's the Ukrainian territory. Um, and my mother's side uh is from uh, a town called nadvirne, which is literally like about 10 miles down the road from where we shot uh the scenes in this movie with the bal Shemtav. so uh, my family has deep roots here i remember things were not that great in ukraine in 1999 i remember coming here and like the lights weren't even on in the airport when i was here in kiev in 1999 i remember meeting a guy um, who was from Brooklyn originally, but he lived in Ukraine. He was uh, basically uh, here to do outreach for Jews because a lot of because of Soviet oppression of religion, a lot of the Jews were were forced to assimilate into uh, into a Soviet uh, lifestyle, and and he was here to kind of like reignite uh, their Jewish spark. And I remember him speaking um, a foreign language, um, and he was he, he spoke very well, and I was like, oh, how, how do you speak Russian so well? And he's like. I don't speak Russian, I speak Ukrainian. And as a teenager, I was like, ah, oh, come on, same thing. You know, what's the difference, Russian, Ukrainian? So now I think a lot of Americans for a very long time and most of the world thought like, oh yeah, it's just, it's just the same thing. But that was my first inkling that, uh, that there's a difference. And just last week, um, I went to meet the, ra- the, gr- the chief rabbi of Kiev, and I told him that story, you know, now 25 years later. Um, and it was funny because he connected me over WhatsApp with the guy who I was talking to at the time. So that was the first time I was here. And then I was here in 2009. I went to Uman for Rosh Hashanah. And I remember coming, I remember coming back and going like, hmm, yeah, they've made some upgrades to this country. You know, it's a little nicer now. <laughs> um, and then I came back. What, was the, what, was, what were some of the biggest differences you, you saw? It just looked more like a functioning country you know in, in 1999 like the roads were uh, most of them weren't paved uh, it, you know it, it, you could see that this country is just barely you know getting their shit together and in 2009 things started looking like the, like the bus we were traveling in was like a nicer bus you know it had air conditioning the roads were better um and then i came back in uh, in 2021 to shoot the film and i was like oh wow there are teslas everywhere you know i was like oh this looks this looks like a like European countries. Progress. It's funny, I was, I was having a lunch with someone yesterday um, and, and, and I pointed out, as a foreigner, because as a foreigner, you notice things that people who are here the whole time you know, don't notice. And we were talking about Ukrainian progress and I pointed out that like, from 1991 until today, both Ukraine and Russia had opportunities to modernize and to create a more free and democratic environment. Russia didn't do it and Ukraine did it. Right In 2004, they had the Orange Revolution. In right. 2014, they had the Maidan Revolution. Mm-hmm. And unlike when, when the full-scale invasion started and some Russians went out to protest, as soon as they started oppressing the protests, everybody went back home. They're like, oh, there's nothing we can do. Ukrainians, in 2014, they went out to protest. And when Berkut uh, police started shooting at them, they didn't leave, right? That's the real difference, is that both these countries had opportunities to modernize and to democratize, And one of them chose not to do it, and one of them chose to do it and to continue to do it, to continue to fight for it, despite the oppression, despite how much they were trying, they they killed them and and, and beat them up, and they continued to protest until they won. So that's the real difference. Um, But it's very obvious to me, to any outside observer, it's very obvious, you know, it takes a lot of strength um, to be told no over and over and over again, and then continue to fight. And it happens every day. It's just, you know, Ukrainians, especially the younger generation, they insist on it. They're, they're fed up. They, they've always been fed up. They're like, we are not like them. We are not like them. We do not want to live in a world where people just get away with stuff. You know, we want a real free society.
0: Fantastic answer. So I take it then you gradually learned Ukrainian or by the time you, you took on this acting role, was, were you fluent by that time or did you still need to learn
1: Ukrainian? No, I still don't speak any Ukrainian. <laughs> I still, only still kn- okay. Yeah, I still only know my lines. I spent like three months. I had a, I had a great tutor uh, in New York. Uh, we did it over Zoom because I was in LA. Uh, her name is uh, Tamara Shevchenko. And she, she basically taught me the lines, uh, how to pronounce them and what they mean. Um, so I spent about three months. You know, we would do a couple of hours over Zoom and then I would uh, put my headphones on and just walk around the corner and just like you rehearse it and rehearse it and then come back and do another session. Uh, and then when I came here, I had another tutor, Alexei, who plays uh, Ivan Dovbusch. Um, He basically said that everything I learned, I need to change because I, I, was, uh, oh, no. I was, yeah, because I was, because everything I rehearsed was in like standard Ukrainian, and this in this film I have to speak Hutzel Ukrainian, which is different Ukrainian. And then I had another tutor come on set, and he said, you know, uh, the Shemtov wouldn't speak. Either perfect uh, um, traditional Ukrainian or Hutsul Ukrainian, he would speak a combination of those two with a Yiddish accent. <laughs> you know, so I took all of those things and kind of combined it together into a hopefully something comprehensible uh, dialogue.
0: <laughs> and so you yeah. you were literally being tutored by your fellow actor. That yes. must have been very effective. Obviously, that was
1: a good way to practice your lines too. Yes, and he was—he was always right off camera. So I would, uh, <laughs> so I would, I would do a take. I would know if I'm doing it right or not, and I and I would say, cut, cut, cut. Did I do that correctly? And he would be like, no, 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 no. It's Mich And I'm like, oh, okay, let me let's do it again. So we do several takes where he would just stand right off camera, and he would motion at me like, you know, uh, I don't know if it's on camera. He would go like, uh-uh, 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 that's not right. Cut, let's cut, do it cut. again. <laughs> yeah, cut, cut. Let's do it. Let's do it again. Um, so yeah, that was. Actually, the most challenging part of the... of the I wouldn't say the most challenging, but there were, there were two major challenges. There was obviously a physical challenge in the role because uh, because of the austere environment that it was shot in. Um, I'm not particularly... Uh, you know, I'm a little Jew. I weigh 120 pounds soaking wet. Um, you put me in a rushing, freezing river and, uh, you know, that Jewish complainer of me will come out full force. <laughs> so I had to uh, suppress you know, the urge to shiver and to, and to, and to bitch and moan, uh, on top of that, the other difficulty was obviously to try to do that while sounding, uh, while speaking in a foreign language, doing the job of the actor and, you know, being in character and all that. So it was, it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely the most challenging role I've ever taken in my career. Yeah, for sure. No question about that.
0: Can you talk about uh, the film shoot? So you mentioned the river, you mentioned the Carpathian Mountains.
1: Where, where all uh, was the was the film shot in Ukraine? So my scenes were shot, uh, like I said, just down the road from where my my mother's side of the family uh, was born and raised, and where they lived for hundreds of years. Um, just down the road, in not, the w- not Western living. Ukraine. Western yeah. Ukraine, Ivano-Frankivsk, yeah. in the Carpathian yeah. Mountains, um, mm-hmm. which is absolutely gorgeous. You know, I would wake up every morning and get on the sit on the balcony of this little uh, bed and breakfast that we stayed in and have my coffee and just marvel at just the sheer beauty of everywhere you looked. And all the food over there is, that's another thing Americans don't understand. You know, we get food from the supermarket and over there, like all the food is like so fresh. It's literally from like down the road. Straight you
0: know, from the cow, right?
1: Yeah, straight, straight <laughs> from the cow. The, you know, the eggs are like from the chicken out. The chickens outside, and the mushroom soup is from the mushrooms that they just picked like two hours ago. Uh, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous place, and the people are so warm. Everybody wants you to wants to invite you into their home. It's like, oh, let me cook something for you. You know, let me make some vermicelli for you. You're gonna love it. I make the best in town. You're not gonna believe it. Um, so, I, so not the kind of catering you're used to when you're on uh,
0: film sets in, in America, right? No,
1: and even the catering, even the even the craft services over there was just what I would call Heimische food, you know, like uh, homey. It's very, you know, it's simple, it's simple dishes that I grew up with because my family, because we're from here, here so we share a lot of dishes. You know, we eat holoptsches, I don't know what do you guys call it here, Hol- Holipze? Uh, I think, so you know, it's basically meat uh, wrapped in cabbage, slow cooked mm-hmm. over a long period of time, just delicious. Mm-hmm. You know, we grew mm-hmm. up eating, eating latkes and people think latke is a Jewish food. It's a Ukrainian food. You know, it's, it's what people here ate. So all the food was very familiar to me. I could feel it while I was shooting. I remember I was shooting the um, these scenes um, as the Balshemtov, and thinking to myself, you know, it's not unlikely that he walked right where I'm walking right now. Not only him, but like all the previous generations of my ancestors lived here. They walked here. They traveled here. They ate here. This is this is where they were. This is where their life was. What did that feel like to you? That must have been very emotional. Yeah, it was very emotional. It was it was it was uh you know I had to uh, work not to be overwhelmed by it, um, and at the same time you know there's a very dark past. You know there's they, they didn't leave under the best of circumstances. So to be back there and to and to tell the story of what it was like back then for my ancestors and how they interacted with the locals, what their relationship with the locals were. Like the relationship between the Baal and Dovbush is extremely important to my history, to my personal history, you know?
0: You wouldn't be here if it weren't for that, right?
1: Yes, not only that, and this is also a very important point. Someone asked me in a Q&A, actually, they didn't ask me. It was Roman Yasinovsky, one of the actors in the film who is also a fighter now. He was talking about the the mental invasion of Ukrainian minds that Mm -hmm. Russia has perpetrated over the last uh, God knows how many years Um, and how we have to get rid of the Russians inside of us, how important this film is uh, to maintain Ukrainian culture, to perpetuate Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian cinema. And I added to that, if my family, even my father and my mother and my grandparents, if they didn't make the sacrifices that they make uh, to maintain Hasidic culture, to maintain Jewish culture. And they made sacrifices. There's no question. You know, I can disagree with the lifestyle on a personal level, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, if they hadn't made that sa- those sacrifices, then you guys wouldn't have anyone to play the Baal Shem Tov. You know, I wouldn't know. That's how powerful. to. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't know how to sing the Baal Shem Tov songs. I wouldn't be speaking Yiddish. I wouldn't have been able to, to do the prayers that I do in the film. You know, you have to make sacrifices in order to maintain and to continue that culture.
0: So you're in Kiev today. Are you there uh, promoting the film or have you, are you living in Kiev
1: now or are you just there uh, for, oh, for more work? You know, I, I, ha- I have a Ukraine problem. You know, <laughs> It's similar to a drug problem, which is every time I come here, I come here for like a week and I stay for two months. When mm-hmm. I came to shoot the film, I was supposed to shoot for one week and then I just stayed for a month. And this time, I came for like a couple of days to a week to just do a small tour and just do a little promotion and then get the hell out of out of here. But I got a problem. I can't leave. I cannot leave this place. I've been here for like a month now. And when I came here, I thought I was going to just do Kiev and just the quote-unquote safe areas. And then when I found out that we're doing screenings in Kharkiv and Zaporizhia and pl- places close to the front lines, the Russian border, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going there. If you guys are going, I'm going. People ask me it's like in the Q&A's after the screenings they're like are you not afraid I'm like no are you not afraid it's like if you you know if I have a premiere and people show up then I'm gonna show up if you guys didn't show up I wouldn't be here so if you're not afraid I'm not afraid and, and, and at the same time to be perfectly honest there's nowhere I'd rather die than at the movies so oh
0: you know, that's really that's really love what you said yeah
1: I love cinema I love the movies it's, 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 it's what I've devoted my life to and if I need to go that's where I'd like to go so tell us about the premieres how how did
0: they go how how, how was it uh, premiering of a film in a, in a conflict
1: zone what was that like you know on the first the first uh, the first premiere I ha- I attended was in Kyiv and we were you know we had this big party and drinks and a huge crowd and of course in the middle of it we had an air raid siren so we moved the entire uh cast and crew and the press everybody went down to the parking garage we all went down to the shelter and just uh, continued on with our promo <laughs> with our promotional tour to do a, a press and Q&A in the bomb in shelter in the parking lot in the parking lot in the bomb shelter uh, and that was in Kiev and then uh, the Dnipro after the screening there was an air raid siren and i'm sitting in you know in the front of the theater and, and doing a Q&A, and there's an air raid siren and i'm thinking oh oh i guess we're just going to move to the shelter Nobody fucking moved a muscle. Nobody left. You know, everybody was just like, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, all right, I guess I guess we're in this together. So if you guys are not going, I ain't going anywhere either. The thing that hit me the hardest was in Zaporizhia. You know, uh, I mean, that city has suffered. And we're it has, yes. Yeah, and we were so close to the front line. But there was a moment where it hit home for me. You know, we were standing in the lobby of the of the theater and doing photos. And all of a sudden I see a soldier walking in. And I'm not talking about a guy, dressed, just a soldier dressed in fatigue. He came in with fresh battle wounds. And I mean fresh. He was slightly oh limping. He had like a makeshift sling around his arm, clearly like a field triage, right? He was. He didn't come from a hospital. He came from a field hospital, directly from the front line with fresh wounds and he walked in, he was still dirty. I mean, I have a picture of this. And that and he came over and just went over to the to the to the to the step and repeat and he walked right over to get photographed with the cast. And I was like, "Fuck me." Like, what what does this movie have to mean to people for someone to come directly from the front line to go see this movie? And and that photo will stick with me for the rest of my life. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. You know, that's when it hit home for me. You know, people are making incredible sacrifices. So we could see a movie and so that I could sit in the studio here and do an interview. Um, And I think everybody I meet feels that. There's like this weird combination of defiance and guilt and anger. And there's so many emotions running through people in everyday life. And it takes an incredible amount of strength that I will never have to continue on, to continue supporting the economy, to continue supporting the culture and to continue defending um, the right to do that. You know, Roman Yasinovsky is, I always tell my people, you're in LA, so you meet actors all the time, you meet uh, artists all the time. It's very hard for us to imagine um, that these soldiers are not professional soldiers you know these are regular people the people i am sitting here in the studio um those are the people who are going to the front line and sometimes getting maimed and killed for freedom for their country you man. know for the that's not for the country that's another thing that that's a huge difference between uh russians and ukrainians they're not fighting for some idea of motherland they're fighting for themselves you know to put it in american terms they're fighting for get the fuck off my loan or i'll shoot you you know To put it in terms that Americans can understand, get off my property or I'll shoot you, right? I have a child at home. I have a wife at home. I have friends at home. And you're here with guns and bombs. Get the fuck out of here. Get out. Get out. Yes. You know, you have no business being here. Or as I like to describe it, when I watch these videos from the front line, you know, I call them, Ukrainians are handing out incendiary parking tickets. Sir, you can't park here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that. It's like, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. And and that's the reason why regular people, why everybody feels like they have to do something. It's not some idea of motherland, of country. Because here, country means people. You know, we elect our government. You know, we, we hold them accountable. We're not like Russians. We're like, oh yeah, that's just... We have an outsourced um, uh, government. You know, it's not... It, you know, government works for the people, and they're responsible to the people.
0: I was in Kiev in May, and I was just amazed at the bravery of everyday citizens. I mean, you know, we, we know about the bravery of of the Ukrainian army and and the president, uh, but the people managing the trains, working in the hotels, in the restaurants, the taxi drivers, everyone is just. Is just demonstrating incredible bravery. I was really surprised to hear that th- this film was premiered in theaters throughout Ukraine, not even just in the areas that are a bit safer, but like you said, right on the uh, right on the front lines. Yeah. and I, I just that just uh, I think is one of the most incredible stories to come out of this of this conflict is is that Ukrainians are carrying on and and you were there you saw that yeah. firsthand you at these yeah. premieres that must have been just a, an incredible thing to
1: experience before i went to kharkiv i was terrified i was like kharkiv to me was like scary because in kharkiv particularly um sometimes the air raid siren comes off after the bombs have hit uh, because it's so close to the Russian border. So and,
0: close, and it yeah. was one of the first cities that the Russians occupied, yes. or
1: tried to. Occupy. Tried to occupy. Yeah, they yeah. didn't succeed, uh, and right. they tried to destroy it uh, because they didn't succeed. Which is what they do mm-hmm. everywhere. It's like if yeah. I can't have it, you can't have it. Um, but in Kharkiv, particularly, because they shoot these S three hundred missiles, which are actually air defense missiles that they've modified for ground to ground attacks, and it takes about thirty seconds from when they are launched until they hit Kharkiv. So you don't have time to go to shelter sometimes. And that's scary. Kharkiv is a, very, is a city full of young people. It's like a college town. The closest equivalent would be like, it's, it feels very much like Boston. You know, it's very vibrant, very beautiful, and, and very young, very young crowd. And it is, the mall is just packed with teenagers doing mall shit. You know, just teenagers going to the mall. And I'm thinking to myself, like 30 seconds. And 30 seconds. And they're just going about their lives. And I'm standing outside. There's like a big fountain outside of the mall. And, you know, it's just kids sitting there and like vaping and, and make, taking, taking selfies and doing TikToks. And, and they all know the danger that they're in. And it's just like, well, what else, well, what else are we supposed to do? A cower all the time? Just like spend, the, spend like 18 months in shelter? You know, no. And when people ask me why I'm here, I'm like, it's very simple. You know, Putin is not my secretary. He does not run my calendar. I operate on my own schedule, not on his schedule. And I think that's the general feeling of Ukrainians. I was like, you know what? You don't run my life. I run my life and we will continue to, you know, to go on with life it's you don't understand it until you're here truly Mm -hmm. you know you can Mm -hmm. i can say it on a podcast you can swat you can watch it on you know you can watch interviews but you don't feel it it you don't yeah you don't experience you you don't you don't you don't truly understand what it's like until you're here until you're with people here and they are going on with life in full defiance of the circumstances
0: so you were in Ukraine for the uh, Jewish New Year. Uh, how did you celebrate it? Well, I went to Uman,
1: you know, like every good Jew. Can you explain that? Why is that important? So Uman is a town in, uh, in central Ukraine, in uh, Cherkasy Oblast. So in that town, there was a, a Rebbe. His name was Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Uh, Breslov is a town nearby. But he chose to be buried in Uman because uh, that's where a lot of Jews were, were murdered. Um, oh, um, in, in certain pogroms. And he felt like uh, he should be buried in this hallowed ground where Jews were killed for being Jews. And he also said that any Jew who comes to his gravesite on Rosh Hashanah, he will personally drag him out of hell. Um, and he had a specific philosophy. His philosophy of Hasidic practice, what many consider to be the closest to what the Baal Shem Tov originally intended, which is, which is, uh, however you do your Judaism, if you do it with a pure heart, with pure intent, then it is accepted by God. So it attracts a vast variety of Jews from all over the world, secular, Hasidic, uh, Lithuanian, uh, It's all kinds of creeds and colors and cultures of Jews who, who flock to Ukraine, every Rosh Hashanah. You know, the closest thing I can describe it to is it's burning, like Burning Man. I didn't expect that comparison, but that's a very interesting But that's truly what it is, because people go to Burning Man for spiritual, seeking spiritual thing. You know, everybody goes there to fix something within them, to figure something out about themselves. A a lot of people who are not religious throughout the year, they go there for like their own spiritual cleansing. And of course, the more fervent Hasidic Jews, you know, to them, it's it's a different meaning. But everybody goes there for a personal cleansing a personal journey, everybody is there on a personal journey, so it creates this kind of like unity and like uh, uh, and unity of, of of purpose that everybody is there. So it's really it's even for someone who's not religious like myself, and, and and I want to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. I want to go to a place where I can do it my own way, and still feel like like I'm doing the, the right way because Rab Nachman said that whatever way you do it is the right way. Um, so that so I went there for Rosh Hashanah. I went to I went to the prayers on the, on the Friday night which was the first night of Rosh Hashanah. It was really, really beautiful, and I had a great time. Um, uh, but I can only handle uh, religious practice for uh, short spurts of uh, time. <laughs> you know, it's not really uh, my comfort zone. But I love it. I love my culture. I love my my uh, um, you know my people, and uh, you know I like to do it at my own pace. And uh, Uman is a great place uh, to do it at your own pace without being judged.
0: And and you're lucky that you were able to time it with the promotion
1: of the film. Yes,
0: that you, you were in Ukraine then uh, while, while Jewish New Year was happening. Yeah, I specific, film, I specifically stayed. Yeah,
1: yeah. One of the reasons I, I stayed longer is because uh, because I wanted to do this, uh, but mm-hmm. also just I, I I can't I can't quit this country.
0: <laughs> As a Jewish man, how does it make you feel when you hear Russian propaganda about Ukraine?
1: Ah, man, it's exhausting and annoying, but most of all, it's just bullshit. It's tiring to engage in it because there's absolutely zero truth to it. And, you know, as an American, let me tell you this. Okay, there are more Nazis in America than there are in Ukraine. Okay, that is a fact. Mm -hmm. There are more right-wing extremists in America than there are in Ukraine. Uh, and but to get a little bit more into the weeds and philosophical about it, I think that Americans have a hard time understanding what Ukrainian nationalism means. America is a very divided country right now, and it, yes, it's it is. It, it's very black and white. Like if you see if you see a, a Ford F one hundred and fifty pickup truck with a with a with a bumper sticker that says "Don't tread on me," you know where that person stands on gay rights. You know where that person you know who that person voted for. You know where that person stands on abortion. You know, you know a million things about that person because it's so clearly divided. And Ukrainian, you, so when you when you call someone in America a nationalist, you don't just call them a na- like a, a, a nationalist; you call them a white nationalist. You call them a racist. You know, you know where they stand on a bunch of issues. Ukraine is not like that. Ukrainians can hold views that Americans would find contradictory, right? So Ukrainian nationalists, you can be a patriot and a nationalist, and and have a trans you know, kid, and support them. Uh, you know, you can be a nationalist and be a liberal. Uh, nationalism in Ukraine is, is very different than, um, than what Americans would think of nationalism. So when you talk about uh, even the most fervent nationalists in Ukraine, we're not talking about the kind of nationalists that Americans think of. So a Ukrainian nationalist is not a racist. I mean, Ukraine is not a racist country. It's just a white country. You know, it's just like there's no black people here. It's just white. They're not. It's not because they don't like black people. It's because they never had slavery here. Uh, you know, it's just white. <laughs> you know, so Americans have a hard time understanding the nuances uh, of these things. Um, but uh, it's it's tiring and it's bullshit. It's not true. It, it, it there's no point in refuting it because there's just nothing to it. You know. And that's, that's really like the the Russian propagandists understand this. They understand that there's a nuanced conversation and nuance is the enemy of propaganda. Mm -hmm. You know, someone wiser than myself once said, if you have to explain, then I've already won. And Russians know that. And they exploit that. They exploit the fact that we have a free press. They exploit the fact that American freedom of speech is something that Russia is more than happy to exploit. It's like, wait a second, we can say whatever we want. Great. We'll just tell you a bunch of bullshit <laughs> and then you'll have to spend five hours to try to explain our bullshit and how it's bullshit and why it's bullshit. You know,
0: you love this country, Ukraine. You've spent a lot of time there. You you can't leave it. You know so much about it. What is something you would want Americans to understand about Ukraine that they don't already understand?
1: Um, ooh, wow. Now we're getting very uh, heavy. I think Ukraine is more like America than, than people want to believe. I want Americans to understand that every country has problems and Ukrainians are not unaware of the challenges that they've fought over for the last 30 years and that they continue to fight over. And I'll give, it, I'll give an example that American, that American politicians who are trying to uh, reduce the amount of aid that we give to Ukraine use all the time and that is corruption, right? And you, the corruption in Ukraine is a holdover from the Soviet Union um, and Ukrainians hate it. They absolutely despise it, especially the young generation. They despise it. Two years ago when I was here shooting the film, um, you know, you would have, uh, Ukrainians would, 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 would talk about, about uh, corruption with exasperation it was just like something that existed and that was here and that they were annoyed by. But they also kind of even engaged in it themselves. They're like, oh, you're going to do this? Yeah, it's illegal, but it's okay. You know, we'll just, uh, I will fix it. It's not like Ill- illegal doesn't mean that you can't really do it. It just means that it will cost you a little bit more money to do it. Um, but they would roll their eyes at it. And I'm talking about people who were apolitical. They were not really engaged. It was just like, oh, well, for corruption. But they were frustrated by it and they were constantly fighting it. Now, people are like supremely fed up by it. They were like, you know, the reason we have Kiev and Russia doesn't have Kiev is because we are less corrupt than them. They saw what corruption does to a country, what corruption does to a military, what corruption does to civic, to civic society. And they were like, if we hadn't fought, if we hadn't spent the last 30 years trying to fight this, we would be just like them and we would have lost the war. And we never, ever want to be in that position again. We never, ever want to be like that. And now they will not tolerate it at any level. It is not rooted out by any stretch of the imagination. They're fighting it every step of the way. And, you know, I don't know, people can correct me if I'm wrong about this. Um, But it's not just the young generation, even the older generation, you know, are are coming to terms that they're starting to understand how, how damaging it is to civic society, how damaging it is to progress when you can't. Fully trust the institutions of your country, and they want nothing to do with that anymore. So I think that's what people need to understand. Yes, it's a problem, but the people of the country, the citizens of this country, are doing everything they can to root that out all the way. And you know, listen, corruption exists in America too, and in a different sure. in a different form. You know, it's uh, uh, you know lobbying is corruption. <laughs> You know <laughs> corporate lobbying is corruption and americans hate it americans are frustrated by it uh, and here there's a lot of you know there's still low level corruption but people are fed up by it and and you know what uh when this is all said and done um you know it's not it's it's not it's not going to exist and definitely not at the level that it existed five years ago 10 years ago and even the way it existed now and uh you know to not to not provide aid for ukraine uh, because of "quote unquote" corruption is an excuse. It's not a reason. It's an excuse. Um, you, if you look at the DoD's uh, procurement process, trust me, you will find corruption at a scale that Ukrainians can only dream of. You know, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars that gets wasted and burned, you know, because of lobbying and 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 American defense procurement processes. And the level that we have it here in Ukraine, the level of waste of American aid that goes towards corruption is minuscule. It is minuscule compared to the level of waste that we have in America. So I think that's what I, that's what I would like Americans to know.
0: Last question. What does the future hold for you in
1: Ukraine? <sighs> you know, the, the, the honest answer, which uh, uh, my publicist is going to get mad at me at being so honest. Um, you know, if I can afford to stay here I, I really would like to, uh, to make more Ukrainian films. I think that the talent that exists here is enormous. Just on just working on Dove Bush, what I noticed, you know we, you've worked in Hollywood, I've worked in Hollywood, and we think of like the professionalism and the level of skill that you see on Hollywood movies is, you know, is, is above what you see anywhere else. And you know it is partially true because of the infrastructure that exists. Um, to uh, to uh, to help people reach those levels, but in terms of sheer skill, I have never seen a makeup department that can do what these people here can do. The sheer level of just skill, just skill in their hands, and what they're able to do. The costume designers, they, they just fix them on the spot, and they they they, they sew them. Um, and the grips, and the way that we shot we shot these scenes in the river, the way they innovate. Um, with, with limited resources to get these shots that look like Hollywood shots. But, you know, if you go behind the scenes, you'll see ropes and pulleys and just people holding stuff together and people dragging each other into the river and out of the river. Um, there's an incredible amount of talent here. There's um, acting and behind the scene uh, talent that I think needs to be cultivated and needs to be elevated. And I think Ukrainians have to believe in themselves. They have to believe in their talent. I don't know if I can help because, uh, you know, I, I, I am quite I, I'm somewhat uncomfortable, especially considering, you know, how uh, how brave Ukrainians are for me to come in as the white savior. Well, it's a white country, but you know it's not. The, but you know what I mean? Uh, the quote unquote white savior, the, the American who comes to teach you, uh, uh, you know, I am not worthy of that title. But I do think that there is something we can learn from each other. I would like to inspire Ukrainians to to make more films and to show their talent and to believe in their talent. So, if I could afford it um, to uh, to stay here, I would like to stay here and I'd like to elevate the level of acting because that's my purview, and and just in general the, the the level of filmmaking that Ukraine that Ukraine produces. And if you know if I could do it, I would I would probably stay here and and continue to do that and continue to make films in Ukraine. Uh, and in Ukrainian and to continue to show the world um, what we can produce here.